Please sit comfortably. So, second day of session, everything settling down even more than yesterday, as it does, as we just get familiar with our surroundings and uh, the routine of session. The title of this talk today is To Mature in Buddha's Wisdom, which is the last line, as you may remember, of Tore Zenji's Bodhisattva's Vow. What is it to mature in Buddha's wisdom? Um, some of the more obvious ways we would, we would consider that we mature in Buddha's wisdom is through the practice of meditation, of which we do so much in Zen practice. And through the practice of meditation and the application of mindfulness in everyday life, we learn to calm the mind, see clearly what is there, regulates our emotions, helps us bear witness in a friendly way, lets us see accurately what's there, moment to moment, helps us to... Um, develop our distress tolerance to pain and suffering, etc. Um, and not only that, not only has it got all those kind of mental health benefits, but as in, in Tore Zenji's Bodhisattva's Vow, do you know those, those, those opening words, the first half of it, it's, it's not just saying that we learn to observe life but we're actually seeing the sacred in all forms of life when I regard the true nature of all things and all living creatures I find them to be the sacred forms of the Tathagata's never failing essence each particle of matter, each moment is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance so it's not as though we're, by being mindful and witnessing, we're just kind of like being a cold, detached scientist observing something as factual. We're actually seeing that we're, we're not separate from what we observe. And it has this sacred quality. Everything has this sacred quality to it. Everything mm-hmm. that's alive. And... Um, in many ways, this divide between religion or debate between religion and science is in many ways a false one because um, religion or spirituality is the practice of recognising the sacredness in everything. Um, but if you also have a truly scientific spirit, how, how can you not help see the sacredness in everything if you really observe the intelligence which is the, the great intelligence or the natural intelligence that pervades everything as you know do you know i just recently had many of you know recently had a, a cochlear ear plan and everyone keeps telling me how amazing they must be like the technology do you know and how human beings have worked out the technology but if you really start to examine the science of hearing and the neuroscience of hearing, you go, wow, this natural ear is, is, is far more amazing than the one that, man, that was man-made by human beings 
Mm-hmm. Um, when you consider the evolutionary process, you know, the trial and error and the growth and so on, all the mistakes that were made and all the, all the learning that happened along the way through evolutionary intelligence to make an ear that can hear all those incredibly different sounds and then convey it to your brain and it becomes conscious. Miraculous. Mm-hmm. It's not just a boring scientific fact, it's miraculous and we're living that, that miraculous nature of things all the time. That's what Torres energy is, is pointing towards. But if you go through that sutra, the first part of it is about how we relate to the non-human world. You know, beasts and birds, particles of matter, the bowls we eat out of, the chairs we sit on, the cushions, etc. And then in the second part of the sutra, it's then talking about interactions between human beings. You know, for example, um, all the more we can be especially understanding and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language, human interaction, conflict. Uh-huh. Now, this is, this is a, um, the, those lines in there, a, a, a lot of people um, get disturbed by them. And in previous Dharma talks, I've given more elaborate talks on those words about just receiving abuse from other people, so you just have to be a doormat and put up with it. It's not quite as, as simple as that. Um, abusive actions and some abusive words we need to address in a much more assertive, direct kind of way. Um, it's no good for you or the other person if it keeps on happening. But I think the spirit of this in a, in a monastic situation is looking at that tendency, that kind of ego-reactive tendency that we all have to be so easily offended, you know, and it's becoming more of a phenomenon these days, you know, um, that people become so easily offended. And Dharma practice is about getting out of emotional reactivity and the emotional reactivity that happens between human beings. That's where most of our ego reactivity occurs. It doesn't happen sweeping the floor so much. In the way that we think about other people or relate to other people and the emotions that come up around other people are our greatest challenge. So he throws that out as a teaching. You know, instead of just reacting to abuse, um, take it as a teaching. Mm-hmm. There are times when that is useful to do. I think I've given this story a few times because I find it so funny. But um, when I lived in Tasmania years ago, I walked into a paper shop once to get a newspaper and a woman I'd never seen in my whole life before came up to me and said, G'day, asshole." <laughs> and it was one of those abusive language moments, you know, and... And I, I, my, 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 my practice actually did kick in there and I went, oh, she just told me I'm an asshole. Right? It's like, that's just that, just that, just those abusive words. Mm-hmm. And if you can stay with that, it's quite different, you know, to how dare you say that to me, etc. There, there is a valuable lesson in it. But like everything, it's in context and it's nuanced. There's, there's abuse that we shouldn't put, deal with and put up with.
So what I want to emphasize today is not so much the meditation and mindfulness aspect of maturing in the Dharma, but the relational aspects of it as well. So that as this sutra ends up, may we retain this mind and extend it throughout the world so that we and all beings become mature in Buddha's wisdom. One of the things I've been doing um, recently is um, preparing a, a, a module, a workshop I need to give in a couple of weeks in our Buddhism and psychotherapy training course. And my module is on Buddhism and relationships, so my mind is focusing a lot on that at the moment. And what I'm finding um, from my family therapy background Um, and particularly a model of family therapy called Bowen's um, system, family systems theory. Some of you are probably familiar with it. When I read through it, particularly a a book written by one of my um, old colleagues in um, Sydney, what I find that that model, to me, fits hand in glove with Zen practice. So I just want to describe to you a little bit more and how the principles that are Zen principles and how we can apply that to maturing through relationships as well. Because we don't just mature through meditation and um, we mature through also the application of the precepts in our life which are relational, they're all to do with how we relate to other people so we don't exploit them or harm them. Um, and uh, and being in a sangha and also having a relationship with a teacher is relational. You know, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, they're the three treasures that make up practice. It's not just a technique of meditation. All these things come together to mature us. And in some ways... Um, In some ways, being in a a group that practices together or having an ongoing relationship with teachers is kind of like, the analogy is not quite the same, but it's kind of like being in a marriage in a a sense. If you you commit to something, um, then that container that you're in gives you an opportunity to grow. Because if ever you just come up against conflict in your life and relationships, you just jump out of it and go into another relationship and cut off and never deal with upset or resolve anything, <coughs> then you just keep going down that pattern. You don't grow from the experience, right? And on the other hand, if you join a group, a religious group that's kind of like a cult-like, you know, and also some families are cult-like as well, uh, not just the family, but I mean families, um, then you have the opposite problem where um, every, everybody's got to think the same, you know, and feel the same all the time, and that becomes dysfunctional. So one of the, one of the principles of Zen that runs through Zen training, and if you do koan study, you'll see very much it runs through koan study, is 
this integration of differentiation and oneness you do Cohen study or you study Zen texts and so on, what you will see is that people fall into the trap of thinking everything is one. You see this in with people um, often when they're beginning Cohen study. They fall into the trap of giving responses as though everything's one. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of vague and woolly. And as a Cohen teacher, what, what you're also looking for, you want people to have a sense of oneness and to be able to express that and the interconnectedness of everything at the same time you want people to understand differentiation that everything is unique there there is the universal and there is the particular there are cushions and carpets you know and incense sticks and iPhones and glasses of water I thought that's all one Everything has its uniqueness. And so Cohen's study in many ways is um, being able to respond from the position of differentiation and uniqueness and sometimes responding from the position of oneness and sometimes responding from the position of neither. Uh That's the the art and the, the challenge of it and the fun of it. So those, it's not just that everything is one, Everything is also different. And when, when you bring those principles to relationships, that's where it's hand in glove with something like Bowen's family systems theory, where you're looking at how the individual can differentiate within a system you know, and still stay connected. So if we're, and, and being differentiated is not the same as being caught in this delusion of a separate self. Zen is not negating the importance of being an authentic individual. You grow into an authentic individual, but a non-ego-driven one. But nevertheless, if you grow in Zen practice and mature in Zen practice, you grow into authenticity of being connected with what you really think and feel and experiencing, not what you think others people think you should be doing. Mm-hmm. That's part of the process. So differentiation is a core principle in Zen and in, and in family systems theory. Um, now The things that people do that are undifferentiated can be seen in two different ways. Um, some people, when they get into conflict or upsets with other people or differences, um, they have a pattern of cutting off. Don't like this, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they just go either from one group of friends or one place of employment to another because they cut off uh, um, or they stay in a relationship and they stay cut off whenever something difficult arises. Mm -hmm. That's one pattern that people have. The other pattern that people have is that they become enmeshed or fused and so 
they try to find, in a sense, a false oneness with those around them. Do you know where they're going to think the same or convince the other person to think the same or to feel the same or want the same thing as what they do? You know, And so you get family styles where people cut off or you get family styles where people just merge themselves in this enmeshment. Mm-hmm. And it's all driven by anxiety, basically. The anxiety to belong. You know, we become enmeshed because there's a desire to belong. But the desperation to belong is not, is not functional. It's kind of like a herd mentality. And it's extreme, you know, it's a cult-like mentality. So if we come back to what even a healthy sangha looks like, um, it's neither people cutting off from one another, you know, and just jumping from, you know, just sitting by themselves or going from group to group. It's about not cutting off and dealing with upsets when they arise, you know, in a group, you know, where you you engage to try and resolve it. Um, And at the same time, everyone doesn't have to think the same. Everyone doesn't have to feel the same. Mm -hmm. People can have different... In a healthy sangha, people can have different um, ethical views um, around issues like euthanasia or termination of, you know, so on. People can have different political views. We don't have to be all left-wing, we don't have to be all Mm right-wing. It can embrace all of those differences. Um, So those same principles of um, oneness and differentiation can exist in a healthy Zen group just as they can in a family or in a monastery. To mature in, through our relationships is to get out of our ego reactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my teacher, Joko, emphasised this a lot, so much, in her own work as a <coughs> teacher, of looking at how our ego reactivity gets triggered off in our relationships. You know, one of the greatest challenges, I think, in being a human being in a relationship is not to react to other people's reactivity. Mm. That's one of the greatest challenges. And we all get caught up in it. I do. Probably do too. Um, Even as a psychologist or a family therapist, where you're really aware of all of this, you can go back to your own family of origin at Christmas and within 10 minutes you're acting like a child again, mm-hmm. reacting to everyone's reactions in the family. You get sort of drawn back into the family system so quickly. Mm-hmm. That's an example of it. Um, Joko gave the example in one of her books that she was non-reactive to just about everyone in her life except her daughter. And her and her daughter could get, who was a Zen student as well, could get so hooked on into each other's reactive pattern. It's a great challenge um, not to react to other people's reactivity, let alone manage our own. And our maturing path as a, as a Zen practitioner 
is to be really, really clear and honest with ourselves as well as compassionate with ourselves about really understanding what our own reactive patterns are and acknowledging them. Um, and it's through doing that, the more, and like in Bowen therapy, the more one individual can differentiate and get out of their own non-reactive patterns, the more that can permeate through a, through a family. One person's change and it can, it, can, um, it can stop the feedback loops going around where it cuts through the reactivity of others as well. It's important to um, in recognizing some of the the reactive patterns um, that we get caught up in in the way, the way that we, we relate to others now. Between human beings, you know, conversation um, is the usual currency, you know, through which we relate. And, and it's part of our practice not just to be mindful of walking down the street or chopping the vegetables, but in particular to cultivate mindful conversation, which is the vehicle of relating. Um, one, of the, one of the mindless things that people do, and we, we can all do it, um, some people more than others, is to have a pattern of interrupting all the time. Um, now, it, if that's a habit you get into that you just interrupt, one, you're not mindfully listening to other people and you're giving the message to other people that what you've got to say is more important than them and what you know is more important than them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really important to develop a conversational style where you're able to pause and listen to other people as well as express what you need to express as well. And we know, we know intuitively that the difference between a fulfilling conversation and one that's not. You know, you walk away from a fulfilling conversation with a friend over coffee and you felt heard and they felt heard and it was respectful and there was pauses and there was silence as well as talking. That can be such a wonderful, fulfilling experience or can also be so frustrating um, when either one person dominates the conversation or people are competitive and interrupting one another, not deeply listening. And so um, the, the principles of, um, of insight dialogue developed by Gregory Kramer, a Vipassana teacher. I don't know if any of you are aware of Gregory's work. He's come to Australia a few times. The good principles to come back to in conversation. Pause, relax, open. That's a basic meditative principle. Pause, relax, open. Second one, trust emergence. Allow yourself just to be an embodied presence instead of just talking mindlessly out of ideas in your head. Speak, speak from that embodied position. You know, trust that what emerges from your body will be relevant to talk about without editing it too much and judging it too much. And then you get a, a flow 
more of a flow starts to happen. And the third principle is speak the truth, speak accurately to what you experience, don't um, exaggerate it, don't minimise it, just be accurate and listen deeply. And listening deeply is not just listening to what the other person is saying, but how they're saying and the feeling tone that goes with it as well. That's a good little model. And they're all things that we can um, integrate into mindful conversation and mindful relating to others that matures us in our practice. To go back to the beginning, um, mindfulness and meditation, as we all know, are are wonderful things to help mature us. And they, they mature us out of self-centeredness into being Mm life-centred and dealing with our emotions in a much more um, mature adult kind of way rather than a childish way. Um, But to actually apply that in all of our relationships, whether they're, they're marriage relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, work relationships, There's so many opportunities in our life to mature through those experiences. We need both. We need that that individual experience of meditation and we need the the connection with others to really grow. One of the other things I notice happens in relationships too in terms of speech patterns is you, you have someone speaking to me and they're speaking very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Like it's really machine gun fire. And then you, you automatically find yourself trying to keep up with them and speaking as fast as what they do. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to mimic each other in conversation and body language and that too. And again, it, it's, a, it's an act of mindfulness an act, and it's an act of differentiation to go, I don't have to get drawn into that rapid, mindless kind of talk. And so instead of just trying to keep up speaking rapidly as well, you just deliberately slow your own speech pattern down. Mm-hmm. And then they keep on talking fast and you just keep on at a regular speed slowing down. That's mindful conversation as well. So... To end with, there is a wonderful thin poem, which is the poem in, in a koan, in the Mumon Khan, which is called Differentiation and Sameness, or it's about differentiation and sameness. And I couldn't find it before I came in, so I'll have to kind of paraphrase the words of the poem. It's, I've got it fairly close. But it's along the lines of the moon and the clouds are the same. The mountains and the streams are different. Is this one? Is this two? All are blessed. All are blessed. Mm -hmm. So not only can we apply that to the natural world and the intelligence there in the in the natural world, that we can apply it to our human realm of relationships as well. If we had both, then we really 
eventually mature in the dharma.